Welcome to The Unseen Journey, a podcast dedicated to supporting veterans and their families as they navigate life after the military. We feature mental health experts, stories of resilience against invisible wounds and injuries, as well as practical tools for reacclimation. The Unseen Journey, brought to you by Operation Red Wings Foundation. And hello, everyone. I'm your host, Guy, with my co-host, as always, Ashley. How are we doing today, Ashley? Another marvelous day. We're headed into like 10 days of rain up here in the Pacific Northwest. So that's always fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, we got an unusual cold snap in Florida, which means we actually did see temperatures in the uh, mid to upper 30s. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it was funny because a lot of the parents were debating if school was going to get canceled. And I was like, it's sunny. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Yeah. Welcome to Florida, right? That, this is my first winter in Florida, so yeah, that does not know. happen here because it rains. Yeah. It rains a lot. Yes. Yeah. So I'm excited and, uh, today, yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. because we have one of our amazing board members. She's nice. one of our longest standing board members, and um, okay. and a great friend of mine. I worked a lot with her with projects with the VFW in Texas, and awesome. She's just amazing. Who is our guest today? So our guest is Connie McNabb. Woohoo! Yeah. Here she is. She is one of our board members, like I said, and she's also an Air Force retiree. She retired nice. as a one-star general. Woo. So we know her around the VFW as general, which she always nice. says, no, there's no rank here. But you know, it's hard. you can't forget the star. You just can't. It's hard. I mean, that's, that's an, <laughs> that is an achievement. Yes. Whether you've been in service or not, right? If you think of being like senior executive, senior leadership, right? Like flag officer, getting that star, that's a big deal. That's appointed by, uh, Connie, you can correct me, but appointed by Congress. I'll go ahead and, and give you the, the caveat. I'm. Yeah, please. Yes, in the Air Force, 23 years, was a colonel forever. You know, I was one of those okay. absolutely bulletproof, fearless colonels. All set for the 07, had the COE and the whole thing, but I got put into yeah. the chief of staff position for Texas Military Department. So that's the guard in Texas. 20,000 uh, okay. troops, a half a billion dollar budget. And there have wow. been some... Uh, uh, there have been some uh, mis misdeeds going on, and the governor fired the top three generals. Just oh, cut everybody just out. See ya. Put in cleaned a, house. Well, yeah. Put in a whole new thing, and you know, I was fat, dumb, and happy as the joint surgeon. And the next thing I knew, boom, I'm the chief of staff. And uh, when you go into a job like that after that kind of thing, not all the evildoers are gone. And so Correct. my job, I was working for uh, Governor Rick Perry, who's a great governor, a great supporter yep. of the Guard, military guy. And uh, I started cleaning house and I kicked over a whole nice. bunch of rice bowls. And, you know, there were people who were misdirecting funds that were supposed to go for mental health and deployed families and yellow ribbon. And just yeah. suffice it to say, I'd say, I don't really care. I'm going to clean house. I am not going to kowtow. Yeah, it'd be great if, you know, all the COE and the, the star happens. That'd be great. Well, it came time and we're getting close and the evildoers know how to play games. They lobbed in a complaint. They knew exactly the timing. Since I was coming up for having a one star, that went to the DODIG that investigates all the three stars, four stars. So this 
colonel who's getting ready to put on a star is low priority. They investigated the complaint and the week after my federal COE expired, DOD IG came back and said the complaint was absolutely bogus. You handed, handled the situation perfectly, you know, oh, well, too bad, but it's just timing. So Rick Perry, Governor Rick Perry and General John Nichols, who was our tag then at the time, said, we still want Connie to have a star. So as long as I'm in Texas, I can wear it. <laughs> so I don't Ain't that something when I'm when I'm with when I'm with uh, colleagues who are federally recognized GOs, you know, I'm I'm a you know, I'm a junior officer to them, though. I'm still I was one of those colonels that everybody's like, oh, no, here she comes. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do to me? Yeah. You know, you know, I was in yeah. they kicked me out for old age. But but anyway, so, you know, thank you, Rick Perry. And it was just one of those, you know, you you took the bullets because the evildoers comments to me is you should have taken better care of yourself. That means I'll turning a blind eye and letting them slither around in the shadows. And I just said, no, that's not the job I'm meant to do. I have a I have a commander in chief. I have an obligation to the Air Force and to the to DOD and the Army. We're going to clean this thing up as best we could. So, uh, you know, thank you, Governor Perry. And as long as I'm in Texas, which is a big place, it's hard to get out of Texas. It's an eight to 10 hour drive in most directions. You go. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I get to wear it. You know, my retirement check from the Air Force says Colonel, and that is fine. <laughs> and that is, and you know, ma'am ma and guy, you know, a lot of people don't realize there's all these little caveats in the military. You know, people can be frocked and your promotion is called a brevet promotion, right? right. right. And th these are terms that aren't, you know, regularly understood. So thank you so much for clarifying that for our listeners. It, you know, it, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like I said, in the VFW, we're all just colleagues, but, you know, like anything, even as I, you know, as I was a commander and, you know, I promoted other people as I got promoted. A promotion is a tool. It's not a reward. It's a tool. So you now have a job that you need to have the tool. I wore the feathers off those eagles, I'll tell you. <laughs> and, so and it's and it's a really it's a really cool story too. So um, I've been watching uh, TV series Jack Ryan, right? Fiction. Right. I don't know if either any of y'all have seen Jack Ryan. Uh, really good show, by the way. I enjoyed it. And there's I don't remember which season. It's a couple seasons in. And one of the senior CIA uh, caseworkers uh, looks at him and says, there's going to come a time in this job where you're, you're going to have to compromise your values, your morals, because um, that's just how it works, because you, you're going to need people to help keep, keep you moving up. And, and Ryan was like, I will never do that. No. Right. So the way the very last episode, sorry, spoiler, ends is he's going on vacation um, with his, uh, I believe fiance might be wife don't quote me wrong on this i i might i might gotten it wrong chat help me out after you hit the like and subscribe say jack ryan was blank with the with the lady um and let me know girlfriend fiance wife anyways and and uh they're like well when are you coming back off vacation and he and he looks at the crew that's working at the cia and he's like i don't know yet not sure because up through you know i think there was five seasons he hadn't done anything to compromise his values. In fact, uh, for part of one of the seasons, he was—he actually got labeled as a, uh, a traitor, an enemy to the U.S. because he wouldn't do misdealings with some of the corrupt um, individuals that were in that were in the CIA. Um, again, fictional TV show. However, 
you did it in real life. And my guess is also, I'm kind of curious at that senior level, right? Looking uh, full bird, even general officer level, how many other females were there at the time you were you were in these ranks? Uh, the the army, the assistant adjutant general for army. So there's the adjutant general, then there's assistant adjutant general yeah. air and army, and the assistant adjutant general for army was a is a lady, uh, Major General Joyce Stevens, who's an absolute leader to the bone, and so uh, she was she was a great help. She also, you know, you know as we as we wrangled through this whole thing. And, uh, you know, good, great confidant, great friend, but bottom line, we got to do, you know, we got to do what's right. And she, you know, she came in, she was one of the replacements. Like I said, they ripped off three generals. So she came in and went into the army spot. So she was cleaning house too. And, you know, yeah. that's where we shared a lot of values and, you know, general Nichols, who is the AG for air had been my wing commander. And so, I mean, I knew exactly where he was going. The The man has got absolute titanium integrity. And, you know, both of those people were a joy to work with in a very, uh, in a very difficult environment. We got, we got nasty grams from Guard Bureau and uh, Air Force and DOD on a regular basis. Are you cleaning this up? Yes, yes, we are. So, you know, it's, so, it's, it's so, money. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So Ashley, you can probably relate to that, right? Because what I hear Connie saying is she was basically like one of two females in a male dominated work environment, right? For all my non-military, right? And and she is doing that popular job of, in essence, coming in, getting rid of anyone who isn't, you know, morally, ethically, legally, uh, you know, doing their job, right? Which is part of, part of the oath that we all take. Um, and, uh, and she's doing it in a male-dominated world as a female, and she's doing it above reproach. Like, if there isn't some unseen elements, oh man, uh, in, in in that character, that's awesome. So, Ashley, you, you probably have some parallels too, right? Being uh, having been a female in service. Well, it's interesting because it's super opposite ends of the spectrum. Because here's okay. Connie coming in as a leader, you know, and having yeah. to come in with all her leadership skills and having to just have that full confidence, I can imagine, ma'am, just, you know, no, having full faith in what you're doing because people are going to be those naysayers and not have faith in you where you just have to have that full faith in yourself. Where I came in as a private, and I was one of two females in my company uh, or my platoon, I should say, there was eight in my company um, of 250. And, but I'm like this private who has to have that confidence of I wasn't in a leadership position at all, but I had to have the confidence of not being taken advantage of and still taking, you know, so there are some parallels there that you still have to stand up for yourself, still have to have faith in what you're doing, but also me, I had to take the guidance from my leadership and, and trust that they were, you know, leading me the right way. As you go through the whole thing, it, you know, it, it seems like I was this groundbreaking and, and as far as military goes, but really I came in, I came in at age 37. I'm a veterinarian by trade. I, I, I specialize in racehorses. I was practicing at Churchill Downs 10 years. Amazing of, stuff. Seven days a week, 14 hours a day, 365. And uh, so joined the, joined the Air Force as a kind of a, a change of pace. Let's put it that way. So having to... Having to go in, you know, talk about a man's profession. You know, I graduated from vet school in 1981. Probably none of you were born yet, but. 
two years later. I was, I was, well, I, was already, I was, I was already a doc, you know, but you know, back then women veterinarians were not common. Women, large animal veterinarians were not common and women equine racetrack veterinarians were not common, but you know, this is what I was led to do. It's where I found, you know, this is what really moved me. If you're going to go and, and work on racehorses, you might as well work on the good ones. And so, you know, Churchill right. Downs is the place. So being able to go into a barn and, you know, every single one of your patients is worth, you know, the low end ones are $50,000 horses, the high end wow. multi-million dollar horses. And the trainers are looking at this girl that, you know, I mean, I, I was, I mean, like I said, I was, I was in, I was in my thirties, but when I, when I came to Churchill and then, you know, for the next seven years there before I went in the Air Force, but, you know, I learned it's, it's, it's what I have here. Can I do the job? If you can't get past having a woman vet, then we aren't even going to have the conversation. But when you start doing good work and people start to see that the horses you're working on are winning races and they're not. Uh, sooner you kind of wear them down and here and there, you know, you, you pick, you pick your times, but there would be horses that I would see on some of these trainers that I wanted to work for. And, you know, you kind of pick your time. You're going to say that, but I'd see them leading their horse back from a race that had, they had not won. And my comment would be, ah, sorry, you didn't win, but when you're ready to start winning at that horse, I'd really like to look at it. What? What? See? You be born yeah. at six in the morning. Okay, I'll be there. Yeah, do, I love that. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't overinflate your skills. You know, sometimes go in and look at them and go, "Oh, there's more here." So thank you very much. You don't owe me anything, and you know, but it's great to be in the barn. But you know, people respect the integrity that, you know, if indeed you can help, you say so. If indeed you can't help, you don't blow a bunch of smoke. But people are putting a lot in your hands. You know, it's a multi-million-dollar horse, and they're not. They have to explain to their owner. You know, so here yeah. it's you know it's learning how to do that. But as you get successful and can make things happen, and you can stay away from the dark side. You know, think you know, talk about some evil doers. There's a few of them slithering, slithering around. Recently. I can only imagine that, ma'am, and how yeah, that's sure. that unseen element that set you up had to set you up for when you did join the military. And this is, I don't want to leave your bio out because we touched on little parts of it, but I just love how we can kind of pick this apart guy because of, with a little bit of what okay. we've already been talking about. So Connie is a racehorse performance horse veterinarian by trade. She was a solo ambulatory veterinarian starting as a farm vet in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And after a few years, moved to Kentucky to a base in 1983 at Churchill Downs and the surrounding area. And after 10 years of solo practice, so doing this on your own and growing, you know, with burnout, with 14-hour days, seven days a week in a very dangerous business. I can only imagine, like you said, those tricky characters that in, in race horsing, you know, horse racing. Well, the horse uh, that's dangerous, too. They're <laughs> 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 taking there quick and there's nothing I do they like. Oh, I can only imagine. And so she gets home and sees a postcard in her mailbox for Air Force health professionals. Uh, are you ready for a change? And guess who was ready for a change? So the summer of 1990, a war was about to break out and it looked like a safer job. And she was ready to explore her options as a veterinarian in the Air Force. 
And she just was the meanest captain to put on those bars, you know, coming from that, the, the horse racing arena into the air force arena. The, think about those unseen if, things leading into that. I don't, I want to reframe that a little bit, Ashley. I, I don't know if I'd say the words mean, right? Like uh, from what, what I hear out of Connie and what I think is interesting to explore and lead to my next question is, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of character right there's a lot of I don't know if um, Connie you're familiar with like Brene Brown right Brene Brown uh, one of her one of her quotes that I really enjoy is uh, sometimes you have to be willing to speak truth to bull I hope I can say that on the podcast <laughs> and her and her and her point is um, very simply right like approach people like you said Connie with with honesty and integrity. Tell them what you can do and tell them what you can't do. Ashley, it's very similar to what we were saying when we were talking about some of the couple stuff a few podcasts ago, um, where we were saying like, hey, like we all wish our spouse could be a mind reader. They can't. So we have to verbalize our boundaries and our left and right limits. So what I'm curious about, Connie, is I, I think it's awesome the way you carry yourself and your career speaks volumes for the way you carried yourself. What What's one of those like, it's one of those like really trying times where where you really had to like dig in deep with your character, your morals, your values to to really stand your ground. Maybe it was a really hard decision for you. I'm kind of curious about that. Where was where did that come in in your career? Uh, whether veterinarian, Air Force doesn't matter. Maybe even marriage. I'm not sure. Well, you know, on the uh, on on the 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 racetrack side, when I after I joined the Air Force. I didn't know what people did from 4.30 on Friday afternoon until 7 on Monday morning because, you know, uh, you know, so after a, a summer yeah. of, you know, having weekends off and, you know, having been seven days a week for so many times, I was starting to weave and crib. So I went to work for the for the uh, Arizona Racing Commission. I was at Luke Air Force Base, and my, my wing commander said, as long as you're working for the good guys and, you know, no going out on emergency calls, Air Force first. I said, sure, no problem. Uh, so one day I, I was working at the track there in Phoenix. It was called Turf Paradise. And, you know, I've been around the track for a while. You know, I understand how to read the racing form and look at the horses. And here a horse came in. He was the favorite in the featured race. The last time he ran was about four months prior. He ran at Santa Anita for a graded stake. So, you know, this is a, a high-end horse. And here and, and at that race, he was on the lead for half of the race. And then suddenly... He slowed down and he came in last by 20 lengths. Ding, 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 wow. ding, ding. I think something happened. So here he came yeah. to Turf Paradise, which, you know, Santa needed a Turf Paradise. If you don't know horse racing, is a, <laughs> it's a precipitous downgrade. But he mm. was the favorite in the feature there. So that means a lot of people are betting on him and they're simulcasting and everything else. And that horse came into the paddock and he had about a half a pound of bandages on one leg trying to support, you know, what, I, I had to assume was a tendon and his eyes were all rolled up and he's broken out in the lather. This horse is terrified. He knows, you know, he knows this, what's, what's going to happen. The horse is terrified and looking the, at the form. I'm just like this. So I went over looked at the horse, you know, felt how much stuff was on the leg. And this is in the paddock. This is on TV and simulcast and everything. And I scratched the horse. I just said, he's out. And the owner of the track, wow. the owner of the track came down to the paddock and called me everything but a Caucasian female. That's not the racetrack term. 
be nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can only imagine. I'm doing, I'm doing this as a part-time job because I don't know what to do with myself on a Sunday. <laughs> you know, but you know, and he's paying me. I'm, actually, I'm on his payroll, but I don't need the job. I'm in the Air Force. I don't need this job. I'm doing this because you know I still got that racetrack thing going on. And he starts chewing me out in the paddock in front of the whole crowd and on TV. And I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> Which, if you've ever been in my command, you've heard me say that, and it was seldom good. <laughs> really? And so I took my little radio. <laughs> we, had, we had, you know, what you call bricks, you know, with the antenna. And I start tapping on his chest with the with the antenna of, of my radio, and I've got the thing keyed open, and I just said, I am the track vet. It is my decision to make. That horse is not sound. I am not going to have him break down and people die on my watch. And if you don't like it, I will go get in my car. I will go home and you will have no more races for the rest of the day. And he wasn't too <sighs> having some five foot 10 redhead female veterinarian <laughs> coming back at him because he was the owner of the track. Everybody pretty much cowed to him. And I did not know that the stewards could make it from way up on top of the grandstand all the way to the paddock so fast. <laughs> Separate them out. And they just said, she's right. And so sorry. Cause you know, you scratch a horse like that, everybody who's bet, then they get their money back. And you know, it's a lot of money, but mm -hmm. the, so it was just one of those, you know, wow. at afterwards and, and at that track for the track bet, you know, one of the, one of the few perks, I mean, it's, you know, but we got to have, we, we could eat lunch in the jockey's room, which was right off the paddock. So they had a little, you know, lunch thing there. And the jockey who was supposed to ride that horse came over to me and just said, you know, thank you, doc. And I just said, not a problem. You know, I don't want to scrape you up off of the racetrack. So, you know, it was just one of those, it's my decision. It could have been just as easy. And then, you know, horse goes out and snaps his leg off and, you know, and, Back back in those days, it's not the racing that it is today, and you know it it does happen. But you don't have to be sending horses out that you know you just know shouldn't be there. So it was one of those. I don't need the job. Fire me. Go ahead. I dare you. <laughs> right, and that's amazing because that's another unseen thing. I like guy that we're so something, ma'am. We always. Uh, pick out our unseen elements that we hear from our stories from those of you who we have on the podcast and something who else our decisions impacts you know that's something that's unseen that you didn't realize you know that how well I'm sure you did realize that you know that you know your decision impacts so many people but to hear that from the jockey that gratefulness <clears throat> and then also from those people that you mentioned that came up from above like all these people were like, thank you. So finally, someone stands up to him and is doing what's right. And that's what's better for everyone. Well, it's, you know, it's credibility with the jockeys. And it was very much the same when I was in command, <clears throat> you know, and you go into situations, you know, my people, my people knew that, you know, if I ever just went, you come here, they better just put their head down. Come in. I've been that person before, ma'am, with you. And yes, I know. <laughs> But, you know, there's no mark. <laughs> but, but if anybody else tries to reach in and mess with my people, they know it ain't going to happen. You know, right. so it, you know, and so it's establishing that credibility. So just like on the racetrack, the jockeys knew that if they had a horse that was bad, they didn't want to get, you know, 
it's a very political situation, but they knew if, if they could clue me in and sometimes it's kind of, a, you know, the, okay, look at this one, you know, they don't want to die, but they have to put on a show that, you know, you scratched them off the horse and, but you know, if, if they, if they, if they take a tumble, they might be paralyzed. They might be dead. So uh, uh-huh. the same with, with military folks, you know, when I, when I hear uh, <clears throat> people say, you know, well, acceptable losses, or, you know, commanders who are really not attached to their people. And some, you know, Army, if you know me, I'm not a real big fan of Army culture. You know, I mean, we need the Army. Somebody's got to do it. Thank you. Glad it wasn't me. But uh, the Army moves the officers around so fast and so frequently. Personally, I think it's so you don't get attached to your people. Mm. I get very attached to my people. They're mine. You know, when the time comes and I told my folks, I said, you know, and they they all figured out who I was in my background. I said, I'm going to treat you all like a, like a bunch of racehorses. I'm going to train you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to put you in where you belong. And when I ask you, I want it all. I want it all. And they would, but they knew then got scrape you back up. You know, that you take care of them. That is so powerful. But there's a time I, you know, as G series orders, there is a time that you, you have the authority and to accomplish your mission. There's times you got to say to your people, okay, this is it. Game's on. Saddle up. Here we go. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the burden, but I don't do that lightly, but it's not, not one of these. <clears throat> oh, it's just, you know, Joe soldier. You know, these are my people. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I I do think there is, I definitely do think there is that, uh, distinction, um, across, you know, across the different branches. Right. And I would probably draw this parallel, right. It's, it's a lot of times as leaders, when we're, when we're whatever that group is, we're close into, right. Like if I just have a squad or platoon or whatever, those are the people that I want to like, you know, I, I want them to perform their best, but I also want to take care of them. And it's interesting you say that about, about the army. Um, because yeah, like doctrinally speaking, there are some percentages that, you know, uh, so like if you have to do a, a deliberate breach with engineers and you're covering it, you know, with infantry and, and a multitude of other things, um, you know, it's acceptable losses for 70 plus percent. And I think about, you know, just like all the decision makers who had to crunch all the numbers and math for, say, for example, D-Day, right? Like that would have been horrific, right? And then you think on the flip side about the close-in leaders who were standing there with their squads and platoons getting ready to get out of those boats and and charge on that beachhead. Um, And I, I, I do think it's interesting, right? So it's, it's, it's leadership from different perspectives for the same situation. And I think it's cool. You know, the, the owner of that racetrack in Arizona was looking from the business, the ownership perspective, you were looking from health safety and honestly, probably not wanting to like make the news in a bad way. Um, because you know, that horse goes down, that jockey gets paralyzed or worse yet dies. Like those are all, those are all, uh, like Ashley said, right? Our decisions have effects that trickle out across the way. And I think, I think it's, I think it's neat how you have kind of like taken a path where, you know, in the military, you were very high up there, right? When we talk 
like I said at the beginning of the podcast, when we talk full bird kernel up, up at some of the high staff levels, you're looking out across the whole organization, right? You're like a senior executive, you know, um, like chief operations officer, things of that nature in, in corporate America. And then when you're the vet at the racetrack, you're right there. You know, you said you're eating with the jockeys. You're you're very close knit with the animals and the racers who are actually going to charge onto that, you know, that racetrack, that battlefield, if you will. Yeah. And I think that's cool that you've been able to kind of lead through both sides of that equation. And in both sides, it Connie is Connie, right? Like you're able to show up, you're able to express in your words exactly who you are, and you're able to to hold your ground. And I think that's I think that's really cool. Um, you know, I think throughout the entire vet culture, and actually this is something I'll throw your direction. I think there is a lot of, you know, moral injury, which I don't think Connie, uh, you, you had, right. And I think there's a lot of vets that with that moral injury that has led to the severe depression and that has led to the, the high suicide rate that we have currently. Right. And I know, Ashley, I'm, I'm kicking it over to you because I know you do quite a bit of work with, um, you know, suicide prevention and stuff like that. I don't what, what are your thoughts on that? I think it goes back to a lot of what Connie talked about with her leadership style of, of having to have faith in the decisions you're making. And sometimes those decisions are hard. And, you know, when we talk about acceptable losses, I mean, we're talking about people who are, will lose their lives. I mean, that is such a huge, I give it up to you officers who had to make decisions like that. Like that's just something, those unseen elements that, you know, people don't, when we talk about the sacrifice that people make in the military, we don't think about it's someone losing their lives, a family losing their family member, a person on earth, their life is ending. And these are like major things that officers have to decide. I, I That's why y'all make the big bucks, you know? And um, so when we talk about moral injury, I think that's where it comes down to because we're taught in our everyday lives as human beings, you know, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt do the right thing. But then in the military, we have this switch where sometimes we have to do these things. Um, we have to take lives or we have to accept that lives are lost. And so that's where that moral compass is just, it's, it's fighting with each other. And I, I do know that that plays such a, a major role, but I think I love that. But when you stand firm to your decisions and you know that you're doing what's right, you know, based on, you know, the mission. And as long as you're staying true with taking care of your people and you're doing the best you can. And I think it's that confidence thing. And that's, what's amazing is the confidence. The, uh, the, really the big difference on, and, and sorry, I laughed earlier doing it for the big bucks. One, <laughs> well, a lot bigger than us enlisted people, ma'am. <laughs> on the racetrack, one set of x-rays would take care of what I made in a drill weekend. So, oh, wow. The money ain't it. It's, you know, it's it's doing something that's worthwhile. But so if your people are going to follow you, you know, are they going to follow you out of fear? Or are they going to follow you because they know, you know, that you know, here we are, we're in, a, we're in the profession of arms. So the likelihood that, you know, the big day is going to come, has got a lot of inherent danger to it. You know, you, what did you not understand? You know, it's not just a cool outfit. But right. if your troops know that you don't make a decision until you have worked every trap that you can and done all you can to see to it, that they're prepared, trained and equipped. They know what you expect. 
that you're going to do all you can, but you know, the time will come as opposed to, and this is where looking horizontally or sometimes, you know, when you get a little higher up, start looking down. I have, uh, I've, I've seen to it that a few people's careers came to screeching pauses, but you also get the ones who they're all about getting their next promotion. So whoever says, <clears throat> you know, do this thing, here's this crap mission. And they just say, yay, barely three bags full, but then just mm. make their people do it, but haven't, haven't taken care of their people, haven't prepared them, haven't, you know, and those are the, those are the officers that, you know, let's see the Vietnam term was getting fragged. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I heard, I heard of one that he actually had to have a security detail from his own people. You know, is this the guy you want to go to war with? So, you know, if we have to go to war, as, as an officer, this is a dangerous business. The likelihood I'm going to have to ask or tell, you know, it, you know we, we don't practice democracy. We, <laughs> we protect it. But still, have I done everything I can? Have I worked my subordinate officers? Who's doing what? Because, you know, as you work your way up, there are times after action, after action sessions can be excruciating, you know. Oh. Also, you know, when you have the honor and privilege of getting complained against, an IG comes in and says, okay, Colonel, what made you think this was such a good idea? <laughs> well, you know, here's how, here's the decisions made, blah, blah, blah. How did we get here? But if it's just, well, I just felt like doing it or my boss told me and, you know, I'm up for a promotion. So I did it, you know. No, no leg to stand on there. So, you know, and not only do you have to answer to your people, but you got to answer to God. Amen. Yeah. And that's where we tie into, you know, having faith and knowing that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons as best you can. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think another key thing you said earlier, right? Like, you know, don't, don't measure the leader, the individual off of, you know, am I male, female, whatever, whatever, measure them off their performance. Like, like how are they performing? How are they doing? Mm -hmm. Uh, there were several times in my career where I can tell you I had much better, <laughs> much better relationships with uh, my NCOs than I did with some of my senior officers. And, you know, it's because I didn't agree with some of the orders and decisions that were being made. And I made sure I made myself known. It doesn't mean at the end of the day, I didn't have to go do it um, because, you know, it, it, like you said, we protect democracy. We don't practice democracy. It just means that, you know, again, like you said, have I looked at all the angles? Have I thought of all the possibilities? And am I, is my unit, is my group, my team that's going to go do this thing? Are we as prepared as we can be so that we can have potentially the best outcome possible? Right. Um, and I, and I think the answer is yes. And, and not, and I, and I don't want everyone listening to the podcast to think that like, you know, oh, there's huge issues across military leadership. I, I don't think that is what we want everyone to take away, right? Yeah. Um, and I would also say like, yeah, sometimes there are there are bad leaders and whether it comes from top down, their careers end or whether it comes from bottom up. Um, I was a, a company commander and I got a, uh, a major who was our executive officer in the battalion fired, uh, kicked out of the army. So it, it can go both directions, right? But what, what made sure that my side of the story was heard was exactly what Connie was saying, right? Like, I'm doing the right things. I'm, I'm not compromising my, my morals, my values, my integrities. 
And and when uh, and honest to goodness, when the when the brigade sergeant major came down and the brigade commander came down to do a sensing session with the uh, uh, senior NCOs, non commissioned officers, and officers, all the non commissioned officers, you know, the, the brigade sergeant major said, "Hey, uh, this captain put in this complaint about this major. Anyone want to speak up?" And uh, I don't know everything that was said in that room, but I know they were in that room for about three hours. Mm -hmm. And so I know that all my NCOs backed me. Well, I do know that. And, you know, I don't want to take away, you know, I mean, it took a lot of courage because, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people do reprise against complainers. And, uh, yeah. But yes, you did the right thing, but that you didn't get him fired. He got himself fired. Amen. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's Correct. One one of the things that, you know, every now and then kind of the the self, you know, the, the self pat on the head. I, I had another time and, you know, granted, when, when we're in war, you know, bad stuff is happening. But when you are in an exercise situation, but we're exercising and we're doing things like, you know, let's go put on some mop gear and carry patients in uh in the summer in El pa in uh, San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> the good idea, Ferry. And With the heat cat oh, already yeah. way past. <laughs> the, good the, ideas. Air Force, the Air Force shows up and we say, okay, guys, get up. It's two o'clock. We're going to start exercise at three so we can do all of this and be done by yeah. six. And the Army planners we're dealing with are going, yeah, 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 sounds good. Well, the Army 06 shows up. And, oh, no, he's got to have his breakfast and then his <laughs> and his club and his LMNOP. And so by the time he's, okay, let's do the exercise. You know, it's been in, it's been in black conditions now for three hours. It's 120 degrees, and we're supposed to do this joint exercise. And my guys are wearing the most mop gear. You know, and they're a bunch of little skin medics. You know, they're not a bunch of you know, big beef. You know, we got the big brains. And... <laughs> Nice. This, I like that. Th this guy had me by data rank, you know, which to the army, that means some air force is just like, you know, us colonels can go, you know, we can go duke it out in private or we can do it right here. And he wanted yeah. right here because he thought he would uh, show everybody that, you know, he was boss. Really? <laughs> As I said, mm -hmm. really? And so he said, we're going to start the exercise now. I said, no, you're not. And he said, you know, and so here's his command sergeant major. I got my chief. We got our, you know, everybody's because. And I just said, uh, no, we were all set as we agreed to. And in our plan, we were all set. You missed it. Right now, I am not going to put my people into that gear because, you know, if I lose my people, that is it, period. And his answer yeah. was, we don't stop an exercise until we've sent at least three to the emergency room. And I said, well, let me, I said, well, you know, and I, I called him by his first name right there in front of everybody. <laughs> which he didn't like, but oh well. <laughs> and I just said, uh, just so you know, I am your senior medical officer. And oh, by the way, just because I wear a blue uniform doesn't mean I don't know how to read army regs. Yeah. And so I am your senior medical officer and I am telling you in an exercise situation, this is unsafe. This is gonna stop now. I will see you tomorrow morning at three o'clock. Yes. And he just nice. and turned on his heel and walked away. And his command sergeant major, who's supposed to, you know, be right behind him, he kind of about a half step behind. And as he walked past me, he said, Thank you, ma'am. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're doing what's right. It's having that confidence. Yeah. That's what I keep hearing. Well and 
it had been amazing. the end of my career. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have to, you know, I knew what was, would happen to me. Yeah. And just, no, I mean, even, but here's all these army guys. And they're just going, oh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> just, nope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Sure. So, ma'am, okay, so let's fast forward with your incredible early life that you got into veterinarian and, and then equine veterinary work and when then with racehorses and then got the wild hair up your butt to join the Air Force, which is incredible, and to have that amazing career. And so tell us about your life transitioning at, once you retired and, you know, then earning your retiree status and leading into how we got so lucky when you joined Operation Red Wings Foundation. Uh, I, when I when I retired out in uh, 2014, they kicked me out for old age. I was, I was TDY when I got my congratulations on your retirement. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> nice. Bottom line, okay, we'll let you go until December, but get out. You know, so all right. I, at, at the time, I was the guard. I was the guard advisor to the uh, to the commander of Air Force ISR agency. You know, so a whole bunch of guard units that a certain president a few ago who decided that a bunch of air guard units didn't need those pesky fighter jets, but instead of making the units go away because all the governors were going to eat his lunch, turned them all into either drones or ISR, so intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. So a bunch of guard mm. units are fighting a war 24-7, you know, from Minot, North Dakota and Terre Haute, Indiana, and you name it. And, you know, these people, they call it death TV. You know, they're they're on Title Ten orders for a couple of years at a time. And granted, the, the people who go to war and deploy out to the desert, I don't want to take a thing away from them because, you know, there's there's not many live bullets shooting at you unless you're in a unit in Houston. And then but but the, other side of the point is when you guys are at war, you're at war. And when you come home, you're home. Well, these people, they're on night shift because what what time is it here when it's war over there and they're talking real time to the guys on the ground? You know, so the ISR, they've been doing surveillance on Abu bin bad guy. OK, don't go in that door. Go in this one. They're listening in as the battle is going on. It's not uncommon. They're listening. When casualties occur. And so these guys, the, the PTS and the moral injury, and, you know, granted, they're sitting in an air-conditioned skiff in Terre Haute, Indiana, but they're two days on, three days off, three days on, two days off. They come out, they go home, and the spousal unit says, here, you know, you got the kids, the refrigerator's broken, I'm going to work. The circadian rhythm is out, is just completely out of whack. So these guys, it's a couple of Benadryl and a little Jack Daniels and try to pass out. And, and so after a couple of years, this, you know, divorce rate, suicide rate, you name it, has gotten off the charts. So, you know, that, you know, I was very passionate about that, you know, and had been passionate about the PTS because, you know, coming up as the joint surgeon and before that as a medical commander, very aware as we're seeing people come back home. All, all this was very important. So Boom, 2014, get out. <laughs> All right, got it. Searched around, found found that I had some uh, GI Bill that I'd accumulated and decided, all right, I know I'm going to be working with nonprofits. There's a zillion of them. Some of them are really, really good, and some of them are absolute shams. So if I'm, you know, I'm not such a big name, but still, if I'm going to get involved, I want to get involved in one I feel good about. And so I went, I used my GI Bill, went to Texas A&M Bush School of, of uh public service, nonprofit management, and got a graduate certificate there and doing coursework 
everybody else was already part of a nonprofit. So you have to write a marketing paper or a project management or whatever. I didn't have a nonprofit. And everybody, I talked to a number of people that I respected very highly. It looked like the, the right thing. I, I made contact with them and I said, you know, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. I have to write papers. So all I'm asking of you is just, you know, can I have a couple of phone calls or come down to visit? And they said, as long as we get to see the papers, I said, sure, sure, I don't care. And so got to know him, got to know Terry Young, got to know Dale Underlin, got to know a bunch of the folks. Basically, like anything else in my life, I just wore them down. <laughs> I'm not leaving till you give me something to do. Well, they finally put me on the board because, you know, the board are a bunch of great people and, you know, very de dedicated to the mission and the mission is solid, you know, so solid. You know, so the as far as the economics go, it's very it's a very very well run organization. But I loved what the mission was doing, and I loved the outcomes that we were getting. And so, uh, they didn't have a veteran on the board, and they didn't have a woman. But a boom, but a bang, two for one. So, they <laughs> they let me come on, and you know, I don't come in with the big bucks from some corporate job or a personal family fortune. And uh, I did warn them, and they knew ahead of time I do come in with a lot of opinions. If you don't like those, I have more. <laughs> but but I help where I can. And, you know, it goes back to that, you know, having been a senior officer, I'm fearless. You know, if, as long as I'm not committing any crimes, you know, who do you want me to talk to? Confidence. Ma'am, the confidence level you have, it's so yeah. inspiring. It just, I mean, I'm like, oh. hold a gun to my head. You know, I'm coming in there. <laughs> you say yes or you say no. Okay, fine. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Well, and and you bring up a really interesting perspective, right? So like in, in the command where you were over ISR, right? A lot of PTS there. And uh, just uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, so uh, post-traumatic stress, right? This can be from, you know, these individuals were watching humans uh, die or potentially even uh, releasing munitions, right? Yeah. Um, and, and even though they were doing it through orders, they were still the ones either watching it or hitting the button to release the munition, right? Well, and they're um, talking to the guys on the ground. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Getting hit. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I um, Yeah. Big, big fan of the Air Force from being a guy on the ground. <laughs> Warheads on the um, We like those. Yeah, for, for sure. And I think... I think it's just, I think you brought to light something that, so I, so I've been both, right. I've been on the ground, uh, engaged in direct combat, shot at, engaged. I've also been in a command center where I worked. My counterpart was a non-commissioned officer from the air force because we were working with the, the birds in the air. Um, and we were, we were calling in strikes and re releasing munitions. So, um, however, when I ended my day's work, I went either to the chow hall or the gym or back to my bunk to grab a quick nap. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't stepping from outside a war zone to family life immediately. Right. And that's a really interesting dynamic and perspective. And it's really cool that you bring it over to ORW foundation, right? So for our listeners who aren't super familiar with ORW foundation, after you reach down there, hit the like, and subscribe. Go to our website, check us out. It's open for all veterans, whether you have PTS from going to combat, whether you are a survivor of any kind of sexual trauma, 
They're like, well, our, our doors are open, right? Come to our retreats. We even have retreats for spouses, couples, families. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and they're I led by incredible people. We have a team leader here with us. Yeah. And we have our board member. And I love, ma'am, you are our second board member to have on. We had Tony Panettieri, our newest board member. Yeah. And it's. I think it's so great for our listeners, Guy, to not only yeah. hear you know, the great work that we do with the foundation, but these are real people, real veterans, real combat tested, you know, leaders who believe in our mission of what we're doing. I just think it's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and when you think about, right. So you think about that transition, right. Uh, individuals come out of service, they say, okay, what's next? Maybe go grab a civilian career. Maybe not. Maybe they're too stuck in some of the, the trauma from their service or even uh, earlier in life, right? Like, as I think about some of the parallels that Connie was talking about, Ashley, um, it's really interesting to me because people who show up to retreats, right? And you know, you know this as well as I do, they show up and within minutes, it's like, we've all known each other for years. And a even sigh have, of relief too, like. Yeah, and a uh, sigh of relief, yeah. I'm with like, my oh, people. Here's, yeah, here's a group of people who understand me. Mm-hmm. So, Connie, I think it's cool that you bring that perspective of having, even though it was, it was individuals who were on, so Title 10 is active duty service orders. So they were, for all in essence, they were active duty, yes. right? Just through a reserve regard component. But that, that problem set, right? Just thinking about that, and that's, this is my question as I kind of slowly get to it. <laughs> like, taking in that problem set where you have individuals who by night are running ops, supporting ops, right? Direct, direct action. Um, enemies are dying. Sometimes friendlies are dying. Um, and then they're having to go back to civilian life. Did that, did that help you bring some of those thoughts, some of those ideas to the table with now ORW foundation that, you know, maybe we've put them into practice, maybe we haven't yet, but I'm just curious because that's a really unique perspective. And I think that's really cool the way you explained it. Well, one of the, one of the things when earlier on uh, Lone Survivor Foundation, it was focused on combat vets. And, you know, the ISR folks, you know, there were one or two that came in and the combat vets, you know, we try, we try at the retreats to have people as, as, as as alike as possible, you know. Sometimes some, you know, sometimes you'll get kind of a mixed bag, and then that's its own dynamic because everybody's still a veteran. But we try to have that, and the I, the guys that had been, you know, kicking down doors and you know going out in full battle rattle, you know, and then here's the Air Force person, you know, with you know kind of the 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 you know the dark the dark room pale and no calluses <laughs> on their hands somehow didn't fit in. But you know, none nonetheless, their trauma and you know just the the wearing down in the moral industry and and the other part is you know when guys are at like i said when you're at war there's no doubt about it (laughs) you walk outside your hooch you're still at war with with these folks you know having that come and go but also because they operate in that super top secret environment i mean people's lives are in their hands and you know as a commander we call the person the SSO. So this is the person, you know, the the security clearance gatekeeper Nazi, which, you know, I, I want a Nazi in that job. But also it had gotten so bad that as these people, you know, here they're dealing with, you know, they're in there, it's death TV, here's this big operation, maybe somebody that they've been talking to for a month died and they listened to the whole thing. And the SSO would say, you cannot 
say anything. So you go home, go to the spouse. I mean, I mean holding you, it all in. Here it is. Oh, the SSO would say you cannot even say that you had a bad day. And then National Guard put mental health professionals in all of the wings, you know, and this has been going on for a long time. But the SSO said, if you even walk down the hallway where that mental health professional is, and all that person is, is really not your therapist, but they're your resource to everybody else. They said, if you even walk down that hallway, you lose your clearance. Yeah. After these people have been doing this job, whatever their civilian job was, you know, and we like to say in the Guard and Reserve, you come, you do your, you go to war, you come home, you go back into your job. Oh, you know, after the war's been going on for how long, that job is gone. Mm. And so here they're on Title 10. The family's got insurance. They're making good money. At least they're not getting shot at unless they're living in Houston. <laughs> but they but they cannot get any mental health because they're not even allowed to say Dang. what they did at all. Anything. Yeah, yeah. They're on Title 10 orders in Terre Haute, Indiana, Minot, North Dakota, you know, wherever. And there's no Title Ten physician, you know, because big Air Force. So, well, they just go to the, they go to the local Air Force base. Really? Mm-hmm. So you go, you get <laughs> really. They got a problem, mm-hmm. and you drive to San Antonio, sit in line, and then something happens. No. So, fearless uh, Colonel, and I can't say I I was the sole one that made it happen, but I sure let people know I was there. <laughs> pounded on pounded on plenty of two and three star desks, but we have got to support these people. They need to, you know, where in the envelope, you know, they ought to at least be able to come home and say, honey, I have had a really, really bad day. Amen. Your support network. You know, because otherwise it's just like we see with our couples. Here you have the veteran and they're, they got all this going on in their head. And just when it gets the worst, then the spouse wants to come in here. Let me love on you. Let's talk about it. And that's ah, the last thing they want. And then the spouse is like, well, if you don't want me, then maybe I don't belong here. And the next thing you know, the wheels come off. And then so it's same, 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 same. And so this ain't rocket science. Let's take care of our people. Let's connect the dots. I can't change the fact that circadian rhythms are, are an issue. Two days on, two days off, three days on, three days off. What time is it? What time zone am I in? And this goes on for years and years and years. I don't have a good answer for that. But at the very least, where's the support? What can, what can our people be able to say to their spouses? What are we doing for the spouses? So at least, you know, come up with a code word, you know, rosebud. It means I love you, go away. <laughs> right. Love you, go something. So I think this is where Operation Red Wing Foundation can be so valuable because the the divorce rate nine times what the rest of the the National Guard Air Guard had for the people in ISR mm-hmm. and in drones the suicide rate out of this world one one occasion a guy who's a chief I mean this he'd been a you know at at, at in in uh, in a state that had had he'd he'd worked on you know he'd been a crew chief worked his way up was the command chief at the wing but he's working the ISR mission. And so this guy is true blue. He's been wearing a uniform for 34 years, but now he's trying to pull these same shifts because, you know, they got a mission to do and they're in the, they're in the fight. And one day he's driving home. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up and his, he's in his car in the ditch and he's looking down the barrel of a gun at the local sheriff. Mm. He fell asleep at the wheel, clipped the sheriff's car 
and that dumped him in the ditch. The sheriff figures this guy is looking to attack him. He gets out, you know, already drawn, and now he opens the window, and he's looking at a guy with, you know, a sleeve full of stripes and just going, holy shit. Sorry, holy crap. But, you know, this guy, you know, this guy's a true blue, you know, work as hard as he can, taking care of his people, but also taking his turn in the barrel, doing the mission, because the mission has to happen. And, you know, got news for you, you know, biology gets you, and he fell asleep. You know, so here it is, you know, so, you know, thing are things as bad? No. Are they getting better? I hope so. You know, I back when I was doing that, like I said, I mean, I'm a very senior colonel and you know what I got to lose, what are you going to do to me? Send me back to Texas. <laughs> you know, but if I go up, I've got enough top cover and I've got a great governor and he's backing me up. And so I could go pound on the desk, but you know, what are we going to do about this? And, you know, and my fellow guardsmen say, kind of, you're a guardsman's guardsman, but you know, they'll listen to you. And I said, well, if not, I'll just camp outside their office. I'm TDY as long as I can. <laughs> that confidence, you know, and I love that. Something, and my final unseen element I, I picked out here of what we were talking about nice. is even after two amazing careers, ma'am, you still got out of, you retired and went back to school and said, what else can I do? <laughs> yeah, and, and I love that. We never know what our future is going to look like. Well, and, you know, things go full, full circle. I'm the vice chair for the Texas Racing Commission. So as we are cleaning up, you know, doing everything in, in racing and coming on, and I'm one of the few that has actually been a race tracker, and I'm a veterinarian, and I practice. So when people come up and they think that they can, you know, tell us some story and somehow get off from a, from a, a penalty or getting their license jerked, and they come and they appeal to who? Me. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, please. You know, I give points for being creative, but don't tell me things that I've said, you know, so, but it's, it's a neat thing. So I'm kind of back to saving the lives of the horses and the jockeys and doing what we can to make racing safe and make racing a good thing in Texas. So incredible. It was in circles. Yeah. I think, I think my, uh, I think my unseen element is just going to be that, that awareness to the, to the mental health aspect, you know, really thinking about the dynamic of having to turn on and off the switch of I'm a war fighter and it's at a certain security clearance level. So then I have to go home and be, you know, a father, a husband, or even just a, a normal American. Right. And, and can't talk about anything that happened in this part of your day. That's so unnatural compared to, you know, the social media uh, world that we live in right now. And I will say, not much better uh, from my experiences in the army side of the house. It was incredibly taboo to try to go talk to mental health. The first place I actually got to talk to a mental health provider was after uh, a master sergeant walked me down a hallway and I didn't know who I was talking to. And uh, it was at, it was at uh, JSOC special staff annex. And she, you know, turned off her computer screen, put down her pen and we just chatted and none of that was ever on any kind of records or anything. Cause it's exactly what you said, right? That fear, that stigma of you're going to lose your job. You're, you're out of the game. You know, you can't go do all the incredible things you've been doing. And then, you know, you transition, right? Um, so you've retired, I've retired. And, and now it's like, okay, so where do I turn? Where can I get the resources now? And so that aspect of that mental health journey, right? right. If you're out there and you are a veteran 
uh, you are a spouse of a veteran, come to ORW Foundation. Come to one of our retreats. We have individuals. We have spouse retreats, specifically for the spouses who have never served. Um, we have couples retreats. Uh, you, if you come to North Carolina, you're probably going to see me there. <laughs> um, and we have we have family retreats, right? And and the whole idea is when you show up to these retreats, like Ashley commented on earlier, you're you're gonna like it, you're gonna be like this going to get on the airplane. And when you show up, as you start to talk to everyone, realize you're normal. Yeah, you've just had some really magic messed up experiences, right? You, you're, you're going to go, right? Exactly like Connie was just doing, right? It's, 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 it's a breath of fresh air, right? And we have clinicians that are on staff and at our retreats because that is so important. And I, I can say, you know, Connie, I remember Lone Survivor Foundation as well. I started as an individual male team leader when it was still Lone Survivor Foundation. And I went through my individual male retreat out in Texas at the beach house when that was still a thing. Yeah. Um, then came on staff. And then, so I've been here through the transition. And now I, I pretty well just do couples retreats. And it's, it, man, couples retreats are, if I can plug the retreat, I love to work. They're powerful and they're incredible. And I would say some of the coolest work I've ever seen is that wall, Connie, that you've been talking about where the, the service member couldn't come home and, and talk about anything. The service member oftentimes puts up this wall and I'm going to speak for myself. I put up a wall thinking I was protecting my wife, Kelly. And the reality was, yeah, I might've been protecting her from my experiences. I was also blocking her out. And once you realize that and you can work with clinicians and you can get that wall down, there's that opportunity to connect and reconnect. And that's so important, right? So I think the perspective you brought in, Connie, today with talking about the individuals who had to shift back and forth between really not normal experiences, going home, and I can't do what's socially normal, which is tell my spouse about my day or get on social media and be like, oh my gosh, this happened today. And that dynamic to you know retiring and now what? The now what is come to ORW Foundation. Yeah. So do us a favor, reach down there, hit the like and subscribe so you can catch all our podcasts. Uh, hit our website so you can sign up for a retreat. They're, they're free of cost to come to our retreats. Uh, I want to say awesome podcast. Wow. Thank you so much, Connie, yes, for being on the podcast with us. We told you we'd be yeah, easy on sure. you. <laughs> yeah. There were good stories. You just Incredible a, stuff, yeah, ma'am. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay. Um, so on behalf of ORW Foundation, my co-host, Ashley, our guest today, Connie, thank you all for joining us on the Unseen Journey. We hope to see you back soon and uh, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. We appreciate you tuning in to the Unseen Journey. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you're a veteran or a supporter of veterans, please think about contributing to ORWF at ORWFoundation.org to help veterans in their transition. We also extend an invitation to veterans to explore our retreat opportunities where they can connect with peers and embark on a healing journey. For additional resources, visit our website at orwfoundation.org. Our heartfelt thanks to Operation Red Wings Foundation for making this podcast possible. Together, we can make the unseen journey a little easier for our veterans. Until next time, take care.